0: Okay, let's, let's begin with a moment of prayer. Let's, let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for the many mercies that you have bestowed upon us, uh, even this week, as we have enjoyed uh, very good and fun things together. We thank you for the good uh, display of fireworks that we enjoyed last night. Uh, we thank you for all the fun time we've had out on the lake. Uh, we thank you that, at least so far, uh, we have enjoyed uh, peace and even safety, and uh, no one has been injured. We thank you for the fellowship and friendship that we've had with one another. We thank you for the fellowship that belongs uniquely to the body of Christ, as we have Christ in common. Uh, We thank you for the work that you called our churches to, and we pray this morning that you would continue to refresh and encourage our hearts that we might be faithful in your sight, and that together we might glorify and enjoy you. Bless us now, we pray, as we reflect on your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so from Colossians 4, uh, that's not Colossians 4, that's 2 Timothy. I can't tell the two apart. Okay, from Colossians 4, verses 1 through 6, actually beginning at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am imprisoned, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person as far as the word of God. Okay, and so if at the end of this, I have not addressed the question that was lingering from uh, yesterday afternoon. There's my buddy. Um, let me know and we'll come back there. This mosquito must die before this lecture is complete. All right. Uh, So today is is sort of the practical application of a lot of the things that we have been uh, discussing. It's the nuts and bolts uh, part of it in uh, a lot of respects. And uh, just to kind of summarize what we've done uh, so far, uh, the first day focused largely on biblical theological themes related to not just the gospel but the Great Commission. And uh, I tried to make the point uh, that the Great Commission begins in the earliest pages of the Bible, just as do the gospel itself. So as much as we think about the whole Bible being Christ-centered and gospel-centered, which is right, uh, we also ought to think of the whole Bible as being Great Commission-oriented in the sense that the whole Bible unfolds God's plan uh, to redeem a people for himself that will become the kingdom of God, the bride of Christ, and that will glorify and enjoy him forever. So from the creation mandate in Genesis 1 to the Great Commission and everything in between with Abraham and Israel and then the coming of the Messiah, the Bible is really held together by redemptive glue. And the redemptive glue is bound up in the person and work of Christ, but his mission to the nations, right? Uh, Last night, uh, someone was reminding me just, you know, the beauty of that language there in Matthew 9 that we don't pray to the Lord of the harvest, but we pray to the Lord regarding his harvest. Okay? Uh, So then uh, yesterday, doesn't yesterday feel like a hundred years ago? (laughs) Right? Um, So yesterday, uh, we looked at some historical stuff and simply tried to make the point that at the heart of what it means to be not only reformed and Calvinistic, but Frankly, Orthodox Presbyterians as uh, to have a commitment to the idea of the gospel and evangelism. I think I'm about to take a TV time out. My lovely assistant, Vanna Quick, will help me. <laughs> Thank you, Vanna. And just so you know, your dress looks lovely today. <laughs> it is kind of funny, actually, because last night he was talking about how sunburnt his legs got because he wasn't wearing his skirt while he was fishing and I just said, you know, it's not a lot of, a lot of times I hear an Orthodox Presbyterian man talk that way. <laughs> All right, so yesterday we, we looked at John Calvin and, and, and kind of nicknamed that little lecture John Calvin the Evangelist. And that, that really is a phrase I'd love to stick with you. I, I think that is actually corrective uh, towards our thinking and really encouraging us to, to think about at the heart of what it means to be Reformed folks, Calvinists, you know, whatever... Uh, we want to call ourselves in that vein, uh, is a zeal for the gospel. And uh, to say it even in a more uh, provocative way, uh, that uh, to be not interested in evangelism uh, is to really dismiss the sovereignty of God and what it means to be reformed. So I'm, I'm claiming evangelism as a part of the heart of what it means to be reformed. Okay? And uh, we can't use the sovereignty of God as some sort of dismissive out regarding the church's calling to participate in the Great Commission. Uh, then after that, uh, we looked at Machen and Van Til as two of the front runners in the history of our denomination story to really try to make the point that, at least in their view, the reason why uh, we started the OPC, and I'm not trying to put it against other denominations, but th- this is our story, Okay, uh, the reason why we started the OPC was for the sake of evangelism and missions. I mean, it's just... It's just the truth of the story, and uh, Machen saw that and said that. Van saw that and said that, and they didn't even say this is just the work of uh, only people who are ordained. You at least have to wrestle with that language in them. They saw it as the work of the whole church, at least in some fashion. Uh, the, the Great Commission is the work of the whole church. Everyone has a part to play in this story, in some fashion. And so now I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna try not to sneeze. I might sneeze. Don't you hate that feeling? And you really want to? Thank you very much. I, I see that hand. All right, this ought to just be like uh, climactic staging. So what I want to do now in this particular uh, piece of our time together is is simply look at Paul's language here in Colossians 4 as he talks about uh, the two ways in which uh, the people of God work together in the area of evangelism, and the two ways I'm referring to are in part uh, the work of those who are called to the ministry in a full-time ordained sense, but also the part of the whole church. And then in our second session, after our break, uh, we're going to talk specifically about little things we can do together as a church to cultivate a culture of evangelism, and I'll tell a few stories along the way about that. So in my view, there are a lot of places in the Bible that address the issue of what, what part do lay people have in evangelism? But this text for me is one of the strongest. And of course, you know, uh, there are good theological discussions about, you know, how do we, on the one hand, uh, see evangelism as the work of the whole church, and how do we, at the same time, uh, respect and protect the conscience of every believer that's not called to this in the same way. So let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, Paul says in Corinthians, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And I want to be very quick and clear to say, uh, I think that that woe is me is a burden that rests particularly upon the shoulders of those who are ordained and called to gospel ministry. That's, that's, That's what should trouble the conscience of a minister. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. But I would be careful to not say that that burden of the conscience, woe is me, Falls upon the conscience of every Christian. Here we make a distinction uh, between those who are called, ordained, and installed the in gospel ministry and the general office of believers. when Paul says, "Woe is me, uh, if i don 't preach the gospel, I think he 's actually supposed to like labor with that like we should wrestle with that. We, you know, pastors should be you know, convicted with that, right? Uh, But the the whole church does not bear that burden where you're laying awake at night saying, woe is me. Woe is me is usually like judgment language. Like this is really, you know, a a sobering, if not terrifying uh, thing. Uh, so, in a certain sense, then, I do like to distinguish between what I call uh, capital E evangelism. Uh, this is primarily accomplished through the means of grace. And as the man of God with the word of God is sent not only to the people of God, uh, but to people made in the image of God and call them to faith and repentance. And I, I think ministers are obligated to that work. It's in the Bible. Paul tells Timothy, who's uh, pastoring the church at Ephesus, a church now that has had three pastors, Okay, uh, he tells uh, Timothy uh, to continue his work as an evangelist while performing his work of a pastor. So it's not an either-or, it's just overlapping degrees. Okay, but, but what about lay people in the church? What, what about you, right? Most of us here are not ordained. This is not a pastor's conference. I'm not talking to you know, my couple buddies I see every once in a while at GA or whatever. Okay, uh, what about you? Well, uh, this is where I'd like to use the language of lowercase e, evangelism, and say that there is a part that the whole church plays, young and old, uh, you teenagers, Uh, You who are older, everyone somehow in the body of Christ has a part to play in the work of carrying out the Great Commission, and that we might call lowercase e evangelism. It's not a perfect distinction, but I want to put it out there. And I think that's what you see Paul doing here in Colossians 4 is actually helping us see these two categories. So look at the language of the text here, and uh, hopefully it'll become clear. So in verse 2, he says, uh, Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. You know, every one of Paul's lang- letters begins language of thanksgiving. I thank my God always on your behalf. Uh, in Colossians see a little bit earlier, he says, whatever you do, uh, do it uh, for the glory of God, giving thanks to God the Father. Uh, thanksgiving is uh, the, the, the effect of a heart that's been won sweetly by the grace of God and give thanks for not only what we have, but the fact that we are in Christ. So we continue steadfastly in prayer. Uh, We do it with thanksgiving. But then notice the next phrase. At the same time that you're giving thanks to God, continuing steadfastly in prayer, uh, pray for us. Now, uh, here's the plea of a pastor. Pray for me. Pray for us. Uh, Very often on on, on Sundays... I will look at our church, and, and I'll ask the church in a way that, you know, like, I really mean it. It's a sobering, serious moment. Like, do you pray for me? Am I the only one preparing for this sermon? <laughs> because if so, we're in trouble. Yeah, you know, we, we publish the sermon text a whole week in advance, and then I send out a reminder on Friday. You know, we're in the book of Exodus. Right now, we're studying uh, fatty kidneys and long lobes of the liver and what to do with entrails and how to get rid of dung and... This is important stuff, <laughs> and it's not always easy to preach on that, right? And so I, you know, I I ask the church, we of the church, pray for me. This is hard sometimes. You know, you set aside your sermon prep time for the week, and then somebody goes to the hospital. What do you do? i say, sorry, I got to study. Well, you can't do that. You know, something bad happens in a family uh, when when you thought you're going to be translating. You can't tell them you're going to call them back the next day. You've you got to go. So sometimes Sunday comes, like the old black preacher, right? Friday is here, but Sunday is coming. Sometimes Sunday is just a coming, <laughs> and Friday disappears. So uh, not only should we pray for our pastors as they perform their regular ministry in the church, Paul's request here is actually for the way in which we ought to pray for our pastors as they labor even outside the church. So I'll read it again. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So what is he doing here? But I believe drawing the church as a whole into the work of carrying forward the gospel by saying to the church, pray for us. Pray that God will open up doors for us to speak the gospel, right? I think this is a great way to pray for your pastors. When I uh, get to do these talks around, we get towards the end, and people begin to ask the questions, okay, what do we do now? All right, so we're getting to that point. What do we do now? Well, I'm telling you, this is where we start. We start by praying. If you'd like to see your church more and more engage the work of the Great Commission. Maybe you feel like you're doing a great job at it. Maybe you feel like you're doing a terrible job at it. If you'd like to see your church reach people around your community. If you'd like to see the gospel become uh, more greatly known in in your area, right, Uh, people on your soccer team, your basketball team, whatever the things are that you do, where do you start? You start with prayer. You pray not only uh, for those who are called to carry the ministry of the word, uh, you pray together as a church that God would give us opportunities uh, to do the things described here in this text. So Paul says not only pray for us that God might have opportunities, pray for us that we might use those opportunities to speak clearly and boldly. I I think those things are challenging, right? Uh, At times, uh, we are so, somebody admitted this to me, Uh, uh, two weeks ago in California, they wonder if one of the things that hindered them from doing evangelism is there's so much intellectual content trafficking upstairs that at times it gets really difficult just to speak clear English. I appreciate that. Right? right, You study all this stuff and then you look at a person and they don't know what to say. That could be a possibility. Okay? Uh, So we need to speak clearly. Paul requests... Prayer that we might speak clearly. Secondly, uh, he uses language of speaking boldly. Okay? Uh, frankly, uh, there are times when I feel like, and I'm a pretty outgoing guy, uh, pretty social, if I figured it out by now, and there are times when I feel like I just don't engage people that I, I probably should have. And my guess is every pastor would admit that. There There are times where it's easy for us to just retreat into the safer corners. You know, frankly, if you've had a rough week at church, it's probably hard to go out and try to engage boldly a whole bunch of non-Christians. You're just running low on emotional energy. You don't... Feel encouraged and invigorated uh, for it. It'd be interesting if you get pastors together, to try to talk about so, how do you see this working out in your church? And how do you see it working out in your own ministry? And, and where do you feel that you're strong? Where do you feel that you're weak? Where are you encouraged? Where are you discouraged? Wherever that conversation lands uh, would be the places we should be praying for one another. So, in a nutshell, do you pray for your pastor? Do you pray that God will grant him opportunities to speak the word, to speak it boldly, right? Uh, that he would open up doors, that people would come to hear the gospel. Uh, I think a wonderful thing we could do together is on the backside of a conference like that, agree to let, let, let's just talk about this some more. I could be, it would disappoint me if, if we have this little you know, family camp conference on this subject, and that's it. That, that's kind of a buzzkill, right? Uh, why not go back and say, "Okay, let's let's talk about where we are together as a church. Let's talk about uh, what we're doing and and what we're not doing." I, I think that could be a vulnerable conversation and also a very good one. Talk as families, as families. Do you ever pray for the lost? You do family worship. Do you ever identify that kid on the soccer team who you just you know what you just got this burden for this kid, right? Uh, his, family's all jacked up, or he seems like he's running away uh, from things he ought to be running toward, pray, Uh, pray not only for your pastors, but pray together as uh, a family uh, for the things the Lord might do, and then pray together as a church, we have a regular time of prayer uh, in our church each week, where we're allowed to just share prayer requests, things are on our heart, and pray, Uh, how about praying about the work of evangelism, and the way that together as a church we're trying to carry that out. All right, so I'm going to move on to uh, Paul's next point after I drink some more of my coffee. In heaven, coffee will stay hot. you ever thought about that? When I was a kid, my grandmother was a really, really feisty, ornery, redneck woman from Alabama. She's Irish, and she's about this tall, and she ruled the world. And when we would travel, I remember if her coffee was cold... Grandma was not okay, and if the waitress came back and brought her coffee that was medium warm, she'd just quit on the waitress. She'd get up, she'd go back behind the counter, and she'd get her own coffee. So here comes this you know tiny little lady walking around, and you know, big guys like me back. What are you gonna do? <clears throat> so I get it from her. So the next section here is I I think a very clear statement uh, to people who are not. Pastors, elders, missionaries, evangelists, whatever. This is to the whole church. I, I, just, I just don't see around this. So if I'm missing something, I want you to tell me. I welcome the pushback. But I think when you get down to verses 5 and 6, this is the clear statement, probably in all of Scripture, clearest command in all of Scripture to those who are obviously unordained, that they have a part in this too. And notice the language. It's walk in wisdom. Now this next word is worth gold. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And I think, especially in our context, this is a challenge. It's a challenge because the world's gone wacko, right? It's a challenge because, especially in our uh, theological envelope, the way we think about family, church, education, uh, all these, all these things, we're we're protective. And we don't throw our lambs to the wolves, right? But you can't get around that in some fashion, some way, Paul is saying, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, okay? Uh, so if the outsiders are there, and I'm doing this very cautiously, trying to you know, tiptoe out, I stole a cookie, I don't want you to know it, right? I'm doing that. I am not walking toward you. And I I think at times we just need to admit as Christians, we spend way too much time in retreating postures. The long silence is for you to think about it. We spend a lot of time in retreating postures. We've come up with cliches, by the way, that I did not come up with, like the reformed ghetto. And you know what a ghetto is. It's like a uh, self-contained, self-defined, homogenous, cultural identity made up of a simple category of people, and their world is their world, and it's it's kind of like the Shire in the Lord of the Rings. The rest of the world is almost forbidden. No one goes outside the Shire, right? The day Frodo takes the first step out, uh, he's the second person to ever step out. We live in these, sometimes two walled-off, isolated worlds. And I just think we need to think about that. Uh, I had a nice conversation yesterday uh, with someone talking about the challenge of, on the one hand, uh, not wanting to our, see our kids uh, become overtaken by the world and at the same time trying to figure out where, what's their place in it? Like, how do they engage? And that is, a, uh, that is a parental and pastoral question that I'm not trying to micromanage from a distance. What I am going to say is what the Bible says, Right? And what the Bible says is we, as Christians, need to walk toward outsiders. So somehow, in some context that is both wise, I'll get to wisdom in a moment, uh, but also active, we need to walk towards outsiders. That's his point. Walk in wisdom. He's not saying uh, do dumb stuff in order to evangelize people. For instance, he's not recommending missionary dating. If you are a teenager and you're dating a non-Christian hoping they'll get saved, you're being an idiot. Just knock it off. It's not good. This is not going to end well. You're going to lose. It almost never works, and it's it's not worth the gamble. You're playing Russian roulette with your heart. Uh, You're not going to save somebody by dating them. Okay? And and, and the rare exceptions, shh. (laughs) Okay, they're like two in the universe. Okay, great. That's not wise. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what Paul is saying. Uh, You know, someone's asking a question in California. You get these kind of questions in California. What do you feel about party evangelism? Well, you know, I will admit, I'm a beer snob. I enjoy a good beer. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible gives you know, wine to gladden the heart of man and help him forget his troubles. And Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine. And Jesus' first miracle was remarkably Presbyterian. Uh, he turned ordinary water into really good wine, not even the cheap two-buck chuck stuff. Okay? Uh, so, you know, the, the Bible does not forbid uh, certain things. But, but then again, think about the conduct and the context of. A late night party with college kids. Are you really going to go there and evangelize them? Or are you going to become the evangelized? Are you really going to go there and win their heart in that context while they're doing all the things that uh, that comes along with as the night goes on? Or are they going to win your heart? I'm not suggesting... Uh, that we do foolish things. I'm not suggesting as parents we throw our lambs to the wolves, but I am saying positively uh, we need to embody a mentality that says we are going to prepare ourselves and the next generation uh, to engage those who are outside. And like I said a couple days ago, you, you, you just don't have an option. It's not like you can hide, right? I mean, they've got so many things that make the world so remarkably accessible to them. And, you know, frankly, our kids are social. And they ought to be. God designed us as social beings. And in the context of social relationships, uh, that's where we're able to engage people uh, most effectively. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Uh, Notice how he also says making the best use of the time. Okay? Uh, So we have time with people. Uh, We don't always have a ton of time with people. One of the things I suggest people do, this is kind of a fun exercise. You could do a Sunday school class on this. Uh, you could do it in a variety of classes. You could do it uh, as a family together, just something fun on the way home from family camp when you're trapped in a car for 14 hours. Um, you could talk about, uh, well, let me say it like this. I personally try to think of, like, telling the story of how I became a Christian, number one, in a way that gets the focus off me and onto Christ, and then I try to have three different lengths of that presentation. So in other words, I have the, uh, I have the, I have the very short approach for someone who I meet ever so briefly uh, you know, in a line at a store. And somehow, if I get in a conversation, there, there actually can be time uh, to do things like that. I'll tell a cute story of my son doing that here in a moment. Um, then I think of like the person on a plane trip. They're kind of trapped. Even if they want to get out, they can't. It's illegal and they'll die. Right? Uh, then maybe you have, you know, your, your next door neighbor, you know, or a family member. You know, someone who sees the way you live your life and they see you, you know, before you've had a chance to make everything up. They, you, know, you have that kind of long, uh, that longer a uh, distance approach. And in my mind, it's helpful uh, to have a short, clear, concise version of this is how I became a Christian, what it means to be one. Talk about Jesus. Uh, a longer version. You're on a plane and you get to tell the long story uh, like I did here. And, you know, frankly, I'm just learning over time to be good neighbors. And, you know, the gospel isn't something you just condense into a package. It's a lifestyle you live before people who are watching. Because people are watching. They, they, they know you go to church. They see you come out in those funny clothes. They see you come back. Right? They know what's going on. Uh, You can do all kinds of neat things in short uh, little spaces of time. Uh, Sometimes uh, our our kids are uh, the best evangelists. Let me go ahead and begin to set up and address the thing that we were talking about yesterday. Uh, Sometimes... Uh, our kids are are the best evangelists. I want to illustrate that in just a couple of ways, that will take me a few minutes. Uh, one, uh, my son is nicknamed in our church Carl the Evangelist. It's fantastic. It, you've seen Carl, right? If I've got the microphone, he wants it next. You know, if I get loud, he, he's willing to get almost as loud, if not a little bit louder. Great kid, love him to pieces. There are days when he drives me absolutely nuts, and I wonder if I'm going to let him live till tomorrow, and his mom says I have to, so, all right, fine. So, Carl invites people to church all the time, and they come. We go to the pool, and, you know, the first three sentences out of his mouth could be, Hi, my name is Carl. What's your name? Do you guys believe in God? Or where do you go? Where are you going to church tomorrow? If it's Saturday, I'm not kidding. I mean, it's so easy for me. Like he's he's, he's my wingman. <laughs> he just, I mean, just, there's no guile. And I, I actually I love that about kids. I wonder why it is. Parents learn from your kids. Uh, our kids are so much more transparent than we are. They just are who they are. You know, when they when they stink, they stink, and they don't worry about it a whole lot. They just stink, right? Uh, when they're grumpy, they're just grumpy, and you just kind of have to deal with it. Uh, they're, 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 they're just not as precocious as we are. They're not as socially hindered as we are. They, they say what they're thinking, and they get away with murder. So my, my son and my mom were having one of those days where uh, I was gone. Uh, my wife was just trying to juggle kids, like juggling cats, and it wasn't going overly well. So my mom, who lives with us, uh, took Carl to Walmart just to get him out of the house, to keep him alive. And so they're down at Walmart, and they're they're in line. Carl can't have a whole lot of sugar. He's he's like pre-diabetic, and if you've seen the movie Gremlins, if he gets a lot of sugar, you know what happens next. So they're in Walmart. He's asking for a soda. My mom says no. They get to the line at at the front, and they're behind this older lady. And Carl looks at this picture of Jesus, on a magazine cover, and he yells out, That's gross! And the lady turns and looks back at him and realizes he's looking at the picture, and she's almost a little offended the way my mom describes it. It's like, Well, what's, what's gross about that? That's, that's a picture of Jesus. And he says, Yeah, I know. But that's disgusting. And she's like, what's disgusting about it? She's like, well, everyone knows Jesus didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes and a short haircut like that. That's not what he would look like at all. And he goes, and goes on to describe what a Middle Eastern man in the first century would look like. <laughs> and this woman's just standing back sort of in shell shock, like, am I really hearing this from this, you know, this little kid? And the lady looks at him and goes, you know what? You're you're Right. You know a lot about Jesus, and he keeps going. He kind of summarizes the gospel, does his little thing. And the lady's just like, looking at my mom, and uh, you're a fine young man, pats his head, and Carl, brilliant. I mean, fantastic salesman. One of you should try to hire him. Looks immediately at my mom and says, Gran, can I have a soda now? (laughs) And she says, no, Carl, you know, I was told you can't have a soda. Uh, So the answer is no. And the lady said, well, can I buy him one? And my mom said, that's very sweet, but I'm getting ready to take him to lunch. I might let him have one then. Well, can I buy him lunch? What? The lady hands my mom $20 to take Carl to lunch. And this is the crescendo, and I'll stop with this. Carl looks at my mom and catches her totally off guard. Hey, Gran, can you give me one of Dad's cards so I can invite this lady to church? And she didn't have one. Bad grandma. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so there's nothing overly staged about that. You know, it's as as cute as it is innocent. And that's what I mean. I think there's actually something quite guileless, uh, unhindered about our kids. That for some reason, as we get older, we lose that. And we become so socially aware that we almost become socially dysfunctional. And I would just encourage us. You know, there's something to be said for that. You know, that that childlike orientation of the heart that Scripture describes in so many ways. How do you come into the kingdom like a child? What makes us the best evangelists? When are you guys the most fun? Right? It's when you're out there doing childish things. Uh, when when big boys grab their uh, big toys and go out there and you know play around on the pond. That's that's when you guys are the most fun to be around. That's why you come here, right? Uh, the likelihood is. That we are the best at something like evangelism when we have the most childlike hearts and disposition towards other people. And don't complicate it with the social intricacies of adulthood. I'm telling you all, what's the opposite of growing up? That. Now, I want to address the thing from last night. So we kind of got to an interesting point last night. And then uh, evil dark lord of family camp said that we must (laughs) move on. No, I didn't do like that. It was something different. So anyhow, sorry about that, Alan. You know I love you. Of all the guys that I know that wear skirts, you are by far the coolest. <laughs> and the best fisher here, probably. All right, so, so an interesting observation that I have made, and this is, this is a penetrating moment, I think, that will, that will be challenging, convicting, encouraging, and dismaying. It's, it's all there. So I've had the privilege now, by God's grace, of, of giving this talk, in a number of church settings, OPCs, CANREFs, URCNAs. So I've I've gotten to do this a little bit, travel into different places. And it's interesting that in several contexts, uh, I've heard a rather chilling admission from a dad or a pastor. And the admission is this. uh, We've lost uh, some of our young men to the church down the road. And as I first heard that a time or two, what I thought they were going to say is they've lost them to immorality. Right? Or they've just kind of been seduced by secular thinking at college. Something along those lines. Okay? You know, there's occasional really sad stories. Right? But that's actually not what they were referring to. Uh, they went on to say that, no, actually, uh, we've actually lost some of our good, godly young men to the church down the street that's doing evangelism because we're not. Now that should punch you in the nose. It's a knife in the heart. Uh, uh, but I've heard this story now a lot of times. I think some of us, you know, even if I say it, this is exposing a nerve. But I'd like to suggest uh, that there's something here that we need to really like, explore and think through. I told you I have an interest in kind of the millennial mindset. One of the things I'm really impressed by is that, okay, so I'm 46, so somebody half my age is in the millennial range. If you're, you know, 30 down to teenage, whatever, you're kind of in that uh, range. And what I'm impressed by, it's intriguing to me, is that for as much as I'd like to think of myself as outward, aggressive, whatever, uh, I'm actually finding a lot of kids, particularly young men, half my age, young ladies too, but I'm thinking of of young men uh, as well, uh, who are even more bold and aggressive than I am. And I've tried to figure out why. I'm going to throw out something. Uh, that I, I, It's my suggestion, and then when we get to Q&A, you're going to interact with me and help me see it better. But here's my observation. If you are in your 20s right now, you are socially conditioned by everything media-driven, the world, music, movies, TV shows, social groups, everything, that whatever you are, be really out there. If you're lesbian, be really out there about it. Uh, we were at the beach uh, not long ago, and there were a couple ladies just 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 making out on the beach. It was absolutely, it really was disgusting. But what was kind of clear about it, to me at least, my perception is, it almost looked like a show, like like we're trying to make a statement, a way of just kind of flipping off everyone around and saying, just so you know, we're we're lesbian and we're here. We want to make you think about it. Uh, there is this part of the part of the postmodern, and that graduates to millennial mindset. It's extremely edgy, and you cannot make someone uh, hide who they are. Uh, The mentality, rather, is to really be out there, right? Uh, Everybody's coming coming out of the closet on everything, no matter what they are, and they're saying it boldly. They're putting it on t-shirts. They're forming identity groups, and and they are on the charge. In other words, uh, paganism has a great commission of its own, and it is full-fledged out there. But by contrast, what I'm encouraged by is that when I look at like a lot of teenagers and college kids that are Christians, if they're Christian at all, they're actually going to be really Christian. Because everyone around them is really whatever they are. If they're pagan, they're really pagan. If they're lesbian, whatever, they're really out there with that. And I actually see a lot of young Christians recognizing that this is just the way the world is working now. Whatever you are, put it on your t-shirt, flex your muscles, and say it loud which puts a church like ours and a church culture like ours in an interesting spot. Because if you have godly teenagers... Young people, college kids, that are interested in saying it loud, want to see their church become multicultural. Uh, they, they've grown up in a, in a culturally sheltered environment and are now realizing the world around them is a whole lot bigger and the nations are right down the street and the body of Christ in the Bible is multi-ethnic and multi-generational and sometimes our churches aren't and they're not simply content with the question, that's just the way that it's been. The answer. It's, that's not a good answer. Why, why doesn't our church do evangelism? Well, you know, that's not good. Why, does, why, why do we all look the same? Well, you know, it's just kind of always been that way. We can do better than that. And actually, let me push it one last step further before you kick me out and make me go home. This is why I do this lecture on the last day. So right now, I would suggest that even if we're talking about, you know, the OPC, reformed churches, even take, you know, churches uh, north of the border, wherever that is, um, They're more multicultural now than they probably were 25, 50 years ago. You agree with that, right? Nothing really impressive there, Okay. I I actually think, very optimistically, that 20 years from now, they're going to be very multicultural. The identity is not going to be tied to simply a cultural, ethnic identity. It's going to be tied to a theological identity made up of multicultural people. So right now, beloved, is the hub. This is the transition. When my kids are raising their kids in the church, they're not going to be having this conversation. They're going to be past this conversation about whether or not we'll ever become a multi- multicultural church. It's going to happen. And the transition is now. And it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. But a part of that transition comes, frankly, and obviously, not just by evangelism between the bedsheets. That's how you maintain one culture, perhaps. But it's going to be by evangelism. It's going to be by going out there and getting to know the nations in our backyard, winning them to Christ, winning them into the church. And some of the best people for that are actually people here who are half my age and have not gone to seminary. They're our kids. They're you. I'm looking at you kids. You're, gonna, you're better at this than I am. You're more fun than I am. You have more energy than I do. You don't have to drink four cups of coffee a day to be around people. Right? You only need two. <laughs> Janiyah needs three. Love you, Janiyah. Okay? Uh, so where I think we're postured then is to really, like, I'm going to say generational things here. If if you've been a part of a generational mindset that has just not really had an eye to the lost, if you feel that, I would encourage you, like, confess that. And not just to the Lord. Talk to your kids about it. Say, yeah, you know what? Uh, we, we, maybe we haven't focused on all the things we need to, and we can acknowledge that, and we can, we can strive to do better. How can I help you do better? And at the same time, I think our young people are like postured ready they 're like dry sponge waiting for water, like ready to be taught how to engage the world around us. And as a dad, as a pastor, I'm excited about the opportunity to do that. I think Mention and Van Til were only right in their day. I think we should share the excitement today and say this is a great opportunity. What a wonderful time to be a Reformed Christian right now when the world's turning upside down and people are literally between homicidal and suicidal and we have the truth and we have the gospel embodied in family and church life, I'll talk about that more in the next session, uh, but it, it's on. And, and the idea of not engaging is not an option. Okay, uh, You're either walking toward the world or you're running from the world. Why would you run when Jesus is one? Why would you run when Jesus is one? So, for you who are younger, I would say this, just, just in case. As I used that illustration a little while ago, I struck a nerve with anyone. Let me just say something encouraging. The church is like a boat. Yesterday, I took my daughter out on a canoe, and you know these knuckleheads on jet skis and you know boats, or whatever, come, you know, flying across, and we'd have to put. Which way do you point a boat if you want to go through waves? You point right into it. That's that's so fantastic for this discussion, right? Number one, uh, the world is coming at the church. You can turn. You can try to take it on sideways. You can put it behind you, see if you can outrun it. These are not really good options. They're also, by the way, unbiblical. Or you can point your nose right into it. So as a church, we're just going to engage. We're just going to resolve ourselves to point the boat into the waves, into the storm, and we're going to engage. We're going to raise up a generation. We're going to engage. Uh, the other thing I want to say, though, is that for those who actually have a strong zeal for evangelism, I think I'm striking a connection with some of you they are actually saying, you know what? We want to do this. Maybe some young folks are thinking, yeah, you know what? I am a little frustrated. We could be doing more. Why are we, why are we the turtle in the race? Right? Well, first of all, that's, that's actually not always a bad thing. Because okay? uh, if you want to turn a boat, a big ship with people on it, you turn it slowly or you throw people off the side of a boat. You don't turn a canoe quickly unless you just really want a great story about that time you went into the lake, right? And one, one this last little vignette on this. I keep saying one last thing and remembering more things I want to tell you. Uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Dutch narrative, let me just speak to this for a minute. I think this is kind of important. Okay, I, I have a real affection uh, for the Dutch Reformed and some things there, and I also have some criticisms. So don't get too excited or too offended. It should be pretty level. But one of the things I do appreciate in this conversation, I've said this to a bunch of, uh, bunch of young people, actually, is bear in mind that when your grandparents came over here, they didn't come over here to plant evangelistic missionary churches. They came over here to survive. They, they fled world war and famine, poverty. They left family members behind to come here with the hope that they would survive. And they spoke a language. One language, and people around them spoke a different language. And the first thing they did is they built a church, and then they built a school, and they worked the farm. And of course they were a one-culture people. And by the way, that's not uniquely Dutch. That's every immigrant culture. So let's just do some good history here. Every immigrant culture is a one-culture people at some point in time. That's just how it works. It's true of Germans and French and Jewish people and Italian. If you look at the Northeast, between uh, the States and Canada, wherever people went, they were all one culture people for a while. Second generation speaks both languages, right? They learn the mother tongue at the table, and they learn the native tongue in the workplace. And eventually, life gets a little bit easier. Third generation has all the benefits. They get iPads. (laughs) And they might not even know the mother tongue. And it might one day just be sitting there playing on their iPad and realizing, man, there's all this music out there and all these people and all the, the world. Not everybody looks just like us, first and second generation didn't see that. But this one does. Don't run away too hastily. Everything that you have, you have because of the hard work of people that came before you. Your grandparents, your parents. And now the blessings and the opportunities you have is a stage that God in his providence has put you on. Uh, this is my encouragement in a nutshell. Don't bail. If you see some faults, some weaknesses, some apathy, let's talk openly and honestly. Your pastor, what pastor wouldn't want to hear from a teenager? You know, I'd love to be doing more evangelism. How can I help you? I mean, that's my Monday dream come true. <laughs> right? I, I went out this weekend with some friends and realized, that's, I don't want to be that. I want them to come and get some of this. How can you help me reach them? That's, that's where we need to go with this. So we don't need to bail. We might need to change, right? We are Semper reformand, always reforming. And we need to reform. And so if we're older and we've missed some things and we see some things we want, let's just call it what it is. If we're younger and we've got energy and zeal to see some good change in the church, let's continue down that trail but not bail on it as we do. All right, so I'll stop there, and I'll, 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 I guess I will invite questions. Yeah, do you want to try to? No, I mean, I can interact with it. I'll just let, okay. So, yeah, so somebody said this in California two weeks ago as well, in, in response at this point. It, it is the case, that, you know, if you're a theologically, politically conservative Christian, the world's not really interested in your opinion. And frankly, you know, we've, we've become uh, described and perceived. I mean, if you're pro-life... Uh, you know, if you, if you embrace biblical categories, if you're anti-homosexuality because you think the Bible is, you're, you're the new racist, right? And, you know, you are now silenced in the broader political world. And I, I think that's true in that context. But I, I think at the same time, I think what our, what our millennials are realizing, Christian millennials are actually, like, committed to Christ is that they're in a context where everyone is brave and kind of out there. At least in my, my view, there's, there's just a, a very strident, in-your-face-about-it uh, mentality, and that as Christians, uh, we have no reason why we shouldn't be, and we should engage that. But to your point, it may come with suffering. I'm not saying everybody wants to hear our opinion but I'm saying it's the general ethos of the culture now that whatever you are to be out there, but for Christians, uh, you know, you're right. It may, it may be greeted with a manner of a rejection, uh, and that's why I think it's so important to remember the identity thing because the badge of the cross is the cross, right? As Christians in this world, Jesus said what? If the world's hated me, it's going to invite you over for dinner and, and, and ask you to share your opinions? No, no. If the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. And the disciple is not greater than his master, Paul to Timothy. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer per- persecution. I, it's on. And this is why I think it's it's just so important now. And I'm speaking as much as a dad. I mean, I, I really feel like it's, I'm bipolar up here. Uh, I shouldn't admit that, but neither should I. And that, you know, sometimes I speak as a dad, sometimes I speak as a pastor, those lines aren't clearly drawn. I, you know, it would not surprise me for our kids to experience persecution like we've never contemplated. So how are you going to prepare them for that? I mean, should they all move to some remote spot in, you know, Western Virginia where there's, you know, no people for a thousand miles and, you know, should we just kind of repeat the Y2K thing or whatever? I, I don't think that's the answer. I don't think it's a biblical alternative. Uh, there's a book. Somebody else brought up a book uh, titled, um... oh, I'm forgetting it. It's a guy suggesting that we should go back to a monastic lifestyle as people of faith. Uh, that's the one. Yeah, the Benedict Option. This is what, you know, we should maybe go back to something kind of monastic, just, you know, enter back into sort of a retreatist thing and this Christian enclaves or whatever. Can't get that out of the Bible. I think what we're what we have to do is equip and go, <clears throat> and just say it's on, and we're going to have to be willing to suffer for Christ's sake, because the world may not give you an option to either be quiet uh, or to be non-evangelistic, and <clears throat> and I'm I'm really encouraged. Like in California, there was a young man there who just he became my shadow. And I mean, every conversation I was having at lunch, he would ask if he could come and, and sit. He became my shadow. And you could almost see, like, you know, I'm like, this, the Lord was really working in his heart. And you could, I think that there's like a, a bravery. It's kind of like a kid learning to shoot a gun. There's, there's some really good stuff going on in the hearts of our kids that they want to learn how to fire that gun. But I mean by that, engage spiritual things. They, they really recognize that it's time. I can't just sit back and watch. It's, it's time to engage the battle. That's why I like the sword maker or soldier thing. I think it's time for us uh, not to simply be training sword makers, but to really view our kids as soldiers in a, in a conflict that, uh, that, that it is on them. It's forced upon them. And it's kind of like that line in Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, you know, I, we're not going to war. It doesn't matter. The war's come to you. It, it's, it's come to us. <clears throat> so engaging with a great commission, I think, it's going to be healthy for the church. Actually, I think reformed churches like ours are about to grow. Like I'm, I, you know, I'm on our denominations church planning committee, I chair our home missions committee of presbytery. I'm excited about the work of church planning uh, in our denomination and ones like ours, because I think we're so well postured for numerical success. I'm all mill, but in my heart I'm post mill. Really, I practice like I'm post mill. So I'll, I'll say more about that in the next lecture. Let me uh, field another question. Yeah, and I I appreciate saying that because probably uh, I failed you by not spending enough time talking about the language here in Colossians 4 uh, where he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, So, you know, your, your comment just makes me want to say you're right. And the way that we need to engage people needs to be with truth, you know, truth categories. But at the same time, uh, really, really gracious. Really, really gracious. And I'll, I'll say this kind of playfully. I don't usually like playing sports with Christians. Number one, because like a Christian basketball league is an oxymoron. There is no such thing. I've never been fouled and cussed out more than while playing in a you know, basketball league with a bunch of like middle-aged men that, you know. Um, that was trying to be playful. I, I think when you think about the context of, of sports, like when I play beach volleyball, I'm trying really hard to win but I have to keep telling myself that's not the most important thing. I need to try really hard to be godly. I I need to watch my eyes. I need to watch my words. I need to not cheat. I I need to be the guy out there that when it's all said and done, they remember not the guy who won, but they remember a guy who, something's different about that guy. He seems to love Christ. And I, I think in those places where we are ourselves doing the fun things that we do, letting our words be seasoned graciously, with salt, but wisely walking toward people, right? We're striving to engage people. Uh, that's how we got to go. Because, uh, you know, we've got a couple of lawyers here. We have a young lady in our church who's trained for law as well, and we were reflecting on a very difficult conversation she was engaged in with a very belligerent person, and, and she was just rehearsing how important she felt that it was to stay calm, to not get rattled, Right? And I, I think we need to stay calm. We need to be gracious. We need to not get rattled, but we also need to not back away. Maybe the lawyer wants to correct me if I've misrepresented.
1: If you have any other questions, you have to hold them until the uh, second session. We're going to break now for coffee.
0: Okay, should we go ahead and fire it back up? Nice. I'm happy to see so many of you are actually still here. And even smiling, that <laughs> much be because we're getting, uh, getting close to lunchtime. Has anyone ever likened Alan Quick to Darth Vader before? Am I the first to do that? <laughs> nice. We'll <take> that back. <laughs> do whatever you want with it. Um, all right, so, so this is our last session. I, just, I really want to try to end uh, just as, as practically uh, as I can. I'm going to tell a little bit of story here, story of our church plant, and then uh, and just try to make uh, just a handful of suggestions and um, maybe give you just some practical things to take away. And, and let me just say again, or at least uh, clearly, I'm confident that a lot of things I'm saying are probably wrong or may not be entirely helpful. So spit out the bones, right? Uh, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Uh, I've never been to a perfect conference, heard a perfect speaker, and I know I'm not one. And so, you know, you, be discerning. Think this stuff through, wrestle with it. But, you know, maybe there's some good stuff to wrestle with. Um, let me also say this, uh, before I get into this particular part. I've grown to appreciate that when I get to tell the story of Covenant, you know, there's some cool things It's really exciting in a lot of ways. You know, at the same time, uh, it's also unique. And I think it's, it's an important and careful note to underscore that what has worked well at our church might not work as well at your church. Uh, what has uh, worked well in our community in terms of outreach might not work as well in yours. Um, you know you have to, you have to make little nuances and think these things through so uh, please don 't think i 'm prescribing in a way that doesn 't need qualification, but maybe just throwing out some ideas uh, that might um, prove to be helpful so uh, you know, by God's grace, the church I'm serving now—if everybody's there—it's about 200 people on a Sunday. Uh, what's kind of unique about that is that we started it 10 years ago with one family, uh, that's no longer with us, by the way, and sadly. Uh, but in the Lord's providence, it's basically, what you would call a parachute plant, uh, which means starting a church from scratch, uh, which is insanity. Uh, this case, there's any ambiguity. Looking back at it, it was really crazy. I'd been pastoring another church I had planted in Orlando. Uh, We were called by the Presbytery to move up to an area that had been on a uh, uh, a list of maps around the country, like big target cities where we didn't have any sort of OP presence and one day, wouldn't it be nice? And I love evangelism and church planning and the Lord provided opportunity for us to go up there. Uh, Our daughter, Kira, who's here, was uh, 14 months old when we went up there. Our son, Carl, was given to us the day before we moved to St. Augustine. Completely out of the blue. All my kids are adopted. Uh, Carl, just Lord's Providence came crazily into this picture. We spent two weeks in Pensacola, Florida before moving to St. Augustine. All this paperwork finally came through on a Saturday. We drove home, got there at 1 in the morning. Starting to sound like this trip. Uh, Got got home at 1 in the morning, got up that morning, preached my goodbye sermon in Orlando filled the pulpit for another church two hours away that didn't have a pastor yet, and the next day we moved to St. Augustine. (sighs) My wife is so patient. There are some great wives here, I'm sure, but mine like, you know, just floats billowing across the clouds, and she's really an amazing woman. Um, and you know, so a month after moving there, we began a Bible study with a couple families, and I started uh, going out and trying to make contacts and do evangelism, and that little group of a couple families grew to 35, 40 people in one month, uh, 50 to 60 people within uh, two to three months, and we had our first worship service within five months that had 100 people show up on the first Sunday, a lot of them were just well-wishers, kind of backed down from that. And then over the course of time, uh, has grown to now by God's grace. you know, Like I mentioned, about 200 people. We have seven elders, four deacons, an associate pastor, a uh, really nice intern. He's even from Canada. Um, we did that just for you. And uh, now we're actually in the context of about to plant three daughter churches. Uh, we have a very strategic plan that we've laid out. Uh, to plant where we have a core group here, a core group there, and a core group there. Uh, a meeting this summer uh, to sit down and iron out some details. And I, I love the OPC. I'm not again not trying to be a denominational snob and I like our church. Uh, I love church planning, and I, I think there are great times ahead. Uh, I think there are also neat little things to share, uh, just in terms of the story of uh, church planning and and how we can do outreach together as a church. Uh, our church is fairly. Diverse. It's not you know, as diverse as I'd love to see it, but I, I think it's ethically uh, diverse in some ways. It's very generationally diverse. Um, I mean, there are babies everywhere. You almost have to watch where you step after service, you know, because if, if you bank hard right, there's probably a kid coming around the corner to meet you. Um, it's, it's just a plain, uh, nothing flashy church. Right? Ordinary means of grace, you know, we have no <clears throat> impressive rock band. I mean, there's nothing. It's just a church. Uh, but there's a real heart for the gospel in the church, and that, that is something I really cherish about it. Now, here's a little cultural nuance. In the South, where I live, uh, I'm in Florida, but Jacksonville, Florida, on a map, is nicknamed the last southern city on the eastern seaboard. So from where I live, you have to follow this carefully, from where I live in Florida, you go north to get to the south, And you go south to get to the north, because everyone south of me is from New Jersey, and everyone north of me has a southern accent. It's just really weird, but that's the life I live. So, uh, you know, in in southern evangelical culture, evangelism is kind of like the 11th commandment, and it's just kind of built into the hard uh, wire of people's thinking. Uh, so in other words, uh, if I'm talking now about cultivating a culture of evangelism, which is what, what I'm doing, I, I want to make it clear that in some ways it was kind of easy for me, uh, because frankly, you know, broad evangelicals, Baptists in the South, every, everybody, evangelism is just part of, you know, sanctification in a, in a pretty normal way. So if you would tell people in our church when we were starting this thing that, you know, we're, we're not going to do evangelism, <laughs> you cannot do it without me. Uh, or if you said, you know, reform folks don't, don't evangelize, they would, if they thought of themselves as reformed, they would say, well, of course we do. So it's been pretty easy, in some ways, to cultivate a culture of evangelism. Uh, and I'd like to say that I did all this fantastic work myself, and, you know, I've got a cape and I fly around like that. And as I go, people just come to Christ and show up at church on Sunday. But it, it hasn't worked like that, it's been like farming. Spent a lot of time working, so a lot of seed and some things sprout. A lot of things don't. Some things come for a while and mature to fruition. Uh, a lot of things haven't. And you know, frankly, persevering and persevering and persevering have just been fully uh, a requirement. Uh, at the same time, uh, God has given us some wonderful conversion stories. Um, and, and a couple of neat ones I'll just, I'll just share briefly. We've had a, an active little college ministry uh, to a nearby secular college from which a number, a number I mean, it's a really fantastic number of kids have come to the Lord, and I've done a handful of weddings. Uh, actually, one the day before I got ready to come here uh, for Flagler students from this college, and now they're married and raising their kids in the arms of the church. And I'm just telling you, they're, they're the core of our church. They are the future of our church in a lot of ways. Uh, it's really been exciting to see one young man and his wife. They've just graduated seminary, uh, and now he's going to do an internship with Eric Hausler down in Naples. And uh, we'll be coming back our way, Lord willing, to plant a church for us. At seven years, this guy's a pagan, sm- pot smoking college kid. His wife uh, is a flaming feminist liberal, and now they are uh, about to become a ministerial pair in the OPC. I love that stuff. That's great. Those are beautiful stories, right? Uh, there was an older Jewish couple coming to our church for a while. Um, they're, they, they're kind of disabled now and can't get there. Um, they're, they're really out there. Uh, they're a converted Jewish couple. The husband wears this big Star David thing. Uh, they believe in aliens. No, I mean it. Like, it's not a joke. They really believe. Like, they're somewhere in Ohio where they're hiding aliens. And uh, Area 52, you know, there's movie stuff about this. And they're so fully persuaded. They love to talk about it at church. And when we did our membership interview with them some years ago, we were like, you know, love you guys, but it's, it's kind of freaking some people out that you're always talking about aliens, especially the new people. We're already strange enough, but that's just one layer too much. So we asked them to, you know, to just not talk about aliens at church anymore. And they agreed. So my mom's husband passed away, and and she moves out to live with us, and this couple uh, ends up sitting with her at Potluck one Sunday, and they're they're meeting with one another, and they welcome my mom to the church, not realizing she's my mom. You can see where I'm going to go. And uh, they begin to talk about the church. They love the pastor, the preaching, all that's nice. And Did you know what they're keeping secret in Ohio? (laughs) They tell her the alien story, and then... um, And they're like, but whatever you do, don't tell the pastor. (laughs) He's my son. And I get this apologetic call the next day. Please don't kick us out of church. We won't do it again, we promise. All right. Uh, So, you know, don't. That's the OPC in a nutshell right there, right? I mean, it's like we've got this magnet out there. Are you the strangest people in the world? Oh, you belong right here. You'll be fine. (laughs) We, plenty more just like you. All right, but this couple—they go to Walmart and they hand out tracks and they invite people to church. I'm not saying everybody needs to hand out tracks. I've told them a lot of times I don't even like the tracks they hand out. I, I don't like those tracks. I give them another one, they go back to their own. They, people do what they want to do. But the point is, you know, there's a, there's a childlike—you know—they just love Jesus and they're out there doing it. I think there's a good bit of that in the church that we need to try to cultivate, uh, where we think of ourselves as really strong in terms of our internal identity. Lord's Day, family, catechism, all that good stuff, uh, but that we also have a strong identity that says, okay, and when we disperse, we are the dispersed. We are on mission, and this is what we're going to do, and we do it in the nooks and crannies of life. Uh, I would encourage you to think along this line that wherever you are the most comfortable is where you are the most likely to be effective at evangelism, even if evangelism simply means for you inviting people to church, which is, which is great. I mean, listen, there are people in our church who just have no shyness at all. They will just engage someone. So do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, they'll just jump right into it with anybody. There are other people who'd break a sweat just at the thought of that, right? But... Uh, they might do something else. Let me just kind of go down that trail. Uh, I love to exercise, play sports. I'm a jock of all trades, master of none. I have rug burn on my leg uh, last, because last night a teenager made me dive for a ping pong ball. Where is that kid? <laughs> it's you. Yes, thank you very much. Right, uh, But I, I love sports, and I, I personally have found that for me, in that context... You know, after I get done trying to chase some people on a basketball court or volleyball or whatever it is, and I'm, you know, sucking on my asthma inhaler on the sideline wondering if I'm going to die, maybe they are too. That's, that's my context. It's really easy for me. I, I let my hair down pretty much only when I go surfing. And strangely enough, out there in the water with my hair down, this might surprise you, but I don't look like an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor. <laughs> but I get to talk to people all the time. And, you know, that you know that stuff is just being playful. But you see the point. Where you calm down and unwind, you're probably around other people who have calmed down and are unwinding. And, and that's where our soul opens up a little bit. That's where other people's souls open up a little bit. So what I'm trying to suggest is, you know, if you're into soccer, that's, that's your mission field. Okay, if you're into beach volleyball, that's your mission field. If you're into golf, Repent. <laughs> It's a horrible sport. It makes absolutely no sense at all. It is the caricature of a sport. It's not even good for the environment. All right, I'll stop. I'll, I'll just stop there. But I'm not pulling the punch. I'm just stopping. All right, so where you're comfortable, where you're able to build relationships with people, uh, that's, that's where you need to be. Uh, you know, Billy Graham just passed away. And with him went an error. It was the error of the religious professional, where people bought religion at the front door, just like they bought vacuum cleaners and encyclopedias. That was Billy Graham's error. Door-to-door stuff, uh, you know, you can do it. I'm not persuaded that just because uh, you put on a, a tie and go door-to-door with a Bible, that people are going to open up and talk to you and trust you. If you look like me, they think you're a Jehovah's Witness. I mean, you're already you know, working against things, right? No one laughed at that. That was kind of weird. Nobody laughed at that. All right, anyway. So, you know, the the trusted, the the, the professional guy at the door is, 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 pardon the pun, it's a tough sell in this postmodern time where everyone that looks like an authority figure is by definition distrusted. That's the heartbeat of postmodernism. You don't trust anybody, especially those that claim to be authorities. So, okay, what do we do, right? Well, uh, in this age where the vertical has been so shattered, the horizontal has taken a stronger role, and this is where you have to build relationships. Evangelism, frankly, may take time. Uh, It it might be a one-off conversation with you in a tie, presenting yourself as a religious professional. Probably not. It might actually be on the basketball court where you've run this court uh, several weeks in a row, and the guy tells you one day, you know what, I think I might lose my job. My kid's in the hospital. Now you're living life together. Now you've got an opportunity to say, can I pray for you? This might not be a guy that even goes to church, but I tell you what, if his kid's in the hospital, he's probably not going to say no. If he thinks he's about to lose his job, he might actually let you pray for him. Then the following week, you get to follow up. Or, you know, if kid's bad off. can, Can my pastor and I come by and visit to pray for your son? I mean, just to say the words, you feel the emotion. I think there's a lot of of life there. Teenagers, you know, the crazy stuff that you guys are thinking about, and I can't even comprehend it anymore. right? But where you're living life, among other people, you have the opportunity to share your life and to engage their life. And I'm just saying, where you are the most naturally yourself is probably where you're the most likely to be successful. I'm trying to make this easy. Uh, I'm not, we don't need to create the wheel, come up with something really complicated here. Uh, I think we need to simply look at being ourselves, being honest, transparent, kind, gracious versions of ourselves. And then, as Paul said, uh, make use of the time. Be wise about it. Okay? Uh, let me suggest something I think is uh, really technical, theological, and I'm just being sarcastic and playful. Uh, it, in a lot of respects, I think it's just, it's just about being Nice. Being nice. When I was a kid, my mom, you know, we grew up without a dad. Uh, she was just a southern lady who just insisted upon gentility. And so that means if I'm, my brother and I are walking towards a door and there's a lady, especially an older lady, in front of us, if we did not go lunging heroically for that door to open the door for us, she would literally smack us. And make us go do that. That's just what you do, right? You, you hold a door for a lady. You, you offer to help. The other day, we are walking out to the beach, and there's this you know, lady by herself dragging this big cooler that weighs as much as she does. You just offer to do that. It, you know what's amazing? Is that, that astounds people today. Uh, just kindness, respect, just little simple things like that. And you know how many times I'll hear, boy, it's been so long since I've ha- had a guy uh, offer to open a door for me or to do something like that. Kindness goes a long way. Our next-door neighbors are elderly. Once in a while, they need help with stuff. They're pagans. They're just flaming liberals from the, you know, from the days of the Beatles and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we've had these good conversations. They're my, they're my long-term approach. I want them to see that I love my wife and my kids, and if they need a neighbor, I'll be a neighbor. Do you know the names of your neighbors? Good. Good. Okay? Uh, Just little things like that. Kindness in the space of life. Relationship building over the course of time. Uh, That's where I think we go. I'm just not persuaded. If you knock on somebody's door, they're going to become a Christian in five minutes and show up on Sunday. But it might. Maybe in your context that works, but in ours, uh, the sun has set on that paradigm in a lot of ways, and you get confused with the creepy cults, but you know, we're, you do whatever you think is going to be best in this area. Uh, let me go down another trail. Uh, this exposes a nerve and also postures you really well for success, I think. So I, you know, I told you the story that I grew up you know, kind of broken family, without uh, a dad, all this kind of stuff. Many of us here you know, have that story as well. Uh, one of the things I think that we do as Reformed folks really well, and, and this is a fantastic opportunity that we squander, is family. And let me explain what I mean by that. Okay? Uh, I remember, even as a non-saved kid growing up, jealousy that I had for my friends who had dads. In, in some uh, lower-income communities, do you know what a dad is? A unicorn. You hear about them, but you never see them. Grandparents? Eh, maybe. A family that gets together over a meal? Very rare. A Bible opened up at the end of a meal. How many of you guys, I don't need a show of hands, but you know, how, how many of our families do things like family devotions, right? I mean, that's long-standing reformed piety and tradition. Uh, so let me just, I think that in some ways it's so brilliant, like, oh, this is, that, was, that was too easy. Uh, try this. So your kids have friends from soccer or surfing or, you know, that, that evil thing, golf, whatever it is that they do, okay? Invite them over. You want to get me in your house? All you got to do is say this magical word, food. All I want to know is when and where. Who doesn't want to eat, right? And the Bible family says you're welcome here. Uh, excuse me, food says you're welcome here. You're safe here, right? That's why it's such a big deal that Jesus ate with sinners. Okay. Uh, what I'm suggesting is a play to your strengths. What you do well, what I think we do well, is family. Uh, you have uh, you have a silver bullet in your arsenal that i think will just give you the stage the microphone everything you want it's grandma's dutch apple pie the secret to evangelism is dutch apple pie because if you're a young teenage guy like me with you know no dad right uh, doing all kinds of dumb stuff on the street tired of eating stuff out of boxes a home cooked meal you see a couple times a year i'm not kidding My mom works 70 hours a week. We add out of boxes. My friends had, you know, like family that dynamic going over there just always felt, felt like Christmas to me because that was kind of the closest we got to. I'm not trying to get all sentimental or whatever, but just to say uh, the thing that you do so regularly, so often in the warp and woof of your daily life is a mystery to many families, many individuals now today. Certainly a lot of young millennials that are growing up with just no definition of family, let alone the reality of it in front of them. And not only do you have family, you've got grandma's apple pie. And on Sunday... What do you do? I'm going to push. You know, I, I, I definitely push here on this subject, but I don't mind. Uh, in some traditions, uh, and this is certainly true in Dutch reform, but don't be offended. Just think about it. You know, your Sunday afternoons are always with whom? Family. I've, I've interacted on this point all over the place. Uh, here's, a, here's a wonderful idea. How, how about invite over somebody whose vast, last name is not van der something? Because if they're going to come over for the meal, they might actually have to come through the church. Right? Uh, have someone over. What happens? You invite them into your, your home, they eat with you, right? They're just excited. That's a fantastic uh, invitation. Then at the end of this thing, craziest thing in the world happens dad opens up a Bible and you pray or you are sing, this is otherworldly, but it's also fantastic evangelism. It's modeling. Uh, somebody, uh, Nabil, I think, you know, challenged me on this distinction between evangelism and discipleship. Uh, to invite over a non-Christian to participate in a meal and see this is both to evangelize, and even now to begin modeling, this is what a godly dad looks like. That's a beautiful thing. This is playing to your strength. If you're the shy teenager who would love to see someone come to Christ but doesn't have the boldness to say all this stuff, well, invite them to the house. Let mom be put on her A-game with food and dad does his thing at the table and the goofy games that come out afterwards. And let them just feel like part of the family for the evening and then invite them to church. I'm telling you, you've got a little string around the heart. It might not be strong enough to pull them, but it might turn into a rope. And this is not rocket science. This is not Vantillian apologetics. This is just, we love you. Come eat. Come be a part of our family. See our culture. This goes back to the identity question. Uh, So many lost kids would love to have the family dynamic that we have and have never seen it. So play, play to your strengths contemplate the fact that some of the things that you are already doing are not necessarily hindrances, uh, they're just simply untapped strengths, and play to those strengths, and talk about ways that you can do it together uh, as a church. I think you'll find uh, that there's actually uh, a lot of things that we are already doing uh, that we can do a little bit better. Uh, Let me talk about a couple of mentality obstacles, and I'll try to land the plane here. You know, know, whenever I say that, that means, like, nothing. Um, (laughs) But that's very postmodern. Do you know what words mean in postmodernism? Nothing. Okay. Nothing is all that there is. Nothing is all that matters. Everything is nothing, and nothing is what matters because everything is nothing. Kind of quoting Charles Taylor there. Um, so obstacles to evangelism. Here are a couple of them. We often point at the world and say, you know, you know, the reason why. People aren't getting saved. It's because of postmodernism. It's because of syncretism. It's because of hedonism and paganism and all those things. Well, I, you know what? That's right, on the world's end. But I, I think we should be willing to acknowledge, maybe there are a couple things on our end that could be uh, creating some hindrances as well, uh, like isolationism, quietism, and indifferentism. Isolationism, we'll build our own little world and do our very best to keep the world out. Uh, Quietism, you know what? It'll be easier for us if we just don't make us think about things and open our mouth. Indifferentism, I just don't care if they go to hell. Now, in my heart, at times, all three of those attitudes exist. There are times when, frankly, it just feels safer, better, especially the dad side of me, to go the route of isolationalism. Uh, frankly, there are times where, socially speaking, uh, to be quiet is less costly than saying something. And there are times, frankly, when I just don't care nearly enough. I'm just trying to be honest with you, so hopefully it's easy for you to be honest with me. But we should repent of those things. You know, we should strive for different Attitudes, and not just blame it all the time on the world. That some of the things we want to see in the church aren't happening. Uh, some of it is on the world, and some of it, frankly, may be on us. We need to talk about that. Uh, the other thing uh, is in this in this context. Uh, I'm going to quote for a couple of things. I've said some really nice stuff about the Dutch Reformed, right? I need a couple of head nods so I know I'm okay. I'm going to push on a couple now, okay? So I did my PhD in Holland. Uh, I enjoyed very much learning the mother tongue and fantastic meals over there and think of it as my Toyota house, my second home uh, there were a few things over there that as relates to this subject uh, concern me and one of them I think in some ways at times can grow into our churches and I'll, just, I'll just say it and you can, you, know, you can push back or interact with me, but there's a little proverb over there that goes like this it relates to our theme it's a proverb in English we are the true church the doors are open let them come now it's interesting, and I've I've talked to this. You know, I, mean, I did preaching, so I was in the practical theology department, and I talked to the guys over, and they own this. Like, this is a problem. They're trying, you know, they they've tried too hard to come around this corner. And at least where I studied, they're probably making some bad choices now. But there was a time when that was sort of the approach uh, to evangelism and church planning. We are the true church. We, us, like we're it, and everyone else is you know Verboten, <laughs> foreigners outside right? We're the true church. The doors are open. We're not trying to lock anybody out. They're free to come. Let them come. problem is, that's not what the Bible says. We are to walk toward outsiders. The Great Commission says, go, okay? Uh, So that that sort of isolationism, if that's in our mentality at all, right? We're the true church. Uh, Let me point something out to you. The world doesn't give a flip. Al Mohler recently said very well, the problem uh, is that you know, the generational change now is like this. Uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, think 80s. Is that 40 years ago yet? It's close. But the best music came out of the 80s. And some of the worst haircuts. But in the 80s, and, you know that ballpark, you know, when some of our denominational realignments took place, right? Uh, people were really looking hard for faithful churches. You could kind of hang out a shingle. We're a faithful church. People would say, oh, you are? Okay, we'll be there Sunday. Al Mohler, great point. Gone are the days where people are, generally speaking, uh, looking for faithful churches. They're still around. But broad evangelicalism has lost its definition of a faithful church. They think it means youth group and loud music and programs. Faithful church is no longer ordinary means of grace, good theology. It's all this other fluff. Okay? So now the burden upon us is to get faithful messages before an audience that aren't necessarily even interested in them, both the churched and the unchurched. So we need to think very creatively about how to get the good stuff that makes us the true church on the inside, on the outside. The doors are open, but nobody's walking in them. We have to walk out them and engage the world around us or you're just going to watch that empty door remain open. Okay? Uh, there's another quote from a gentleman called Aron Ron Pinstern, if I'm saying his name right, uh, he was a political figure, kind of like uh, Abraham Kuyper, also a reform thinker, uh, who said our strength is in our isolation. Okay, now I see some smiles, but I also think we've got to admit, there are times, you know, when that isolationist mentality uh, m- might be there, and that we view it as our strength. And, and I kind of understand that, and I also want to just push on that a little bit and say, uh, I don't know quite how you'd get the Great Commission into that, but if you say so, I'm listening. Uh, Abraham Kuyper, now to give a kind of positive puff for our good Dutch friends. Uh, Abraham, not Abraham Kuyper, R.B. Kuyper. I can't tell the two apart. That was supposed to be funny, too. <laughs> Clearly, I'm running out of steam here. <laughs> Kuyper said, godly living is no substitute for the gospel. An old Franciscan uh, that you've heard of, a Sissy is his name, uh, said, Share the gospel always and sometimes use words. There's a flaw in that, right? Uh, godly living doesn't save people, the gospel does, okay? And liberals can do good things to other human beings. Pagans, atheists, can cut their next door neighbor's lawn, okay? So share the gospel always, and sometimes use words. I think we can do uh, a, little bit, a little bit better. Uh, where I want to um, end is to say just, just a thing or two. Number one, uh, the Reformed faith, in my view, poses the highest goal of evangelism. It's not simply the saving of souls. It's the glory of God. Because evangelism is a means of gathering together those who will glorify and enjoy God forever. And uh, one of the things I just really look forward to, I don't say this in some sort of a sad way, but I, I, like there, there are Christians I, I look forward to being in heaven with. And there are people who are going to become a part of your church because you're going to take these things that we're talking about, and you're going to go home, and you're going to pray about it, you're going to talk about it, uh, you're, going to, you're going to do this stuff. And uh, you're going to, just think, there are people you've yet to meet who are going to become a part of your church family. That's exciting, right? And then you're going to be with those people in heaven. And ultimately, we'll give all glory to God. Uh, But there's a certain sense, you know, uh, Romans 10, how lovely are the feet of those who bring good news. Uh, some of the sweetest, dearest people uh, to me—I guess I should think in that category. Let's say it differently. Uh, there, there are people in our church who, when I walk past them, you just walk past somebody and just feel love. There's, there's a young man in our church, bigger than me, uh, who, who came to Christ, our church's ministry, and is now raising his kids in the arms of the church. And when I walk past this guy, he gives me this kind of quiet smile. Gigantic man makes me look small. It's, it's like he's always saying thank you. It's the most wonderful feeling in the world. He just has that, thank you for sharing the gospel with me. He was a lot of work, by the way. He was a lot of work. The church is on stage. God has set the stage. He is the author and the finisher of our script. He is the central character who gets all the glory. Uh, But here's, here's the key. I like this little drama metaphor. Everyone in the church has a part in the story. Some may have more prominent roles. Maybe some will be called. Maybe some of you, listen to me now. Some of you may feel, you know what? Hey, I'm just going to serve Christ with my life. I, I, this is what I want to do. Some of us have, uh, we all should feel that way. Uh, Some of us may be called to ordain ministry, mission field. Wouldn't that be great, right? If that might be the fruit of some of this. But even if not, everyone has a part to play, a praying part, a giving part, a speaking part. Everyone's on stage. Right now, I'm the only guy up here talking. But as regards the drama of the Great Commission, the whole church has a part to play. Leave here, rest of this, what is your part? Where does your family fit in? How can we talk about this together as a church? Church leaders here. I feel like there's a mosquito that doesn't want me to finish a sentence without being distracted. Uh, How can you church leaders create space for this conversation to go on in your own congregation and setting uh, so that we can learn together what it means to participate in the drama of God's redemption, his plan to save his people and his harvest by our hands, feet, feet. And words. That's how he says he's going to do this. Our great joy and delight is being a part of that. And it's one of the most wonderful and exciting things that we have before us. It's the work of the church. I think our church paradigms and our sister denominations as well. We've got wonderful tools in the shed, we've got some fantastic swords over the fireplace. Some of them have not seen battle for too long. So let's not just be sword makers. Let's be soldiers because the battle belongs to the Lord. All right, I'm going to stop there, uh, but don't get too excited. We're going to do question and answer for a few minutes before we wrap up for lunch. But I actually did stop there. Yes, ma'am. How do I work that out? Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, let me at least answer or begin answering with an honest admission. So I, I think my kids have learned most of their first cuss words from people I play volleyball with. And there are a few of my volleyball playing friends who don 't like me because in a certain context or two, a few ladies in particular, I can remember my daughter sitting beside and they just I mean they were way past dropping the f bomb They were having a kind of conversation no young lady needs to hear. It was horrible, and you know, I asserted myself with a little bit of daddy bear and said that 's not appropriate, and forever have been sort of I, I just I feel the edge even even still, this has been several years ago. You know, so th- there, there are lines that you have to draw. I think this is a wisdom question. Uh, wisdom to me is, a, is applying the truth of God's word in a variety of different practical contexts. So there's not a John 3.16 for your question. It's a wisdom issue, right? How do you, is this the right battle to pick? Is this the right time to pick it? You know Which is more important, that he stops saying the F-bomb or that I get to talk to him about Jesus? I'm not even trying to answer the question. It could be both hand, but it could also be an either or, depending on the given nuances. And I I think it's hard. I think what I would say, though, is what I love about what you're doing is you're building relational capital with these kids. And my impression is a lot of kids that are like that, they stand down pretty quickly, especially to a mom. Like, my mom was a neighborhood mom. We weren't a Christian family, but you couldn't tell your mama jokes about my mom to other kids. Like, the, everyone feared my mom, but because they loved her. She was like you. She was the one that drove us to the beach, and, you know, when she had time, she would she would do uh, things like that. And, anyway, I think you're building relational capital uh, that may not, may not only posture you to speak into their life, but also your kids. Right? So there's a... Carpe diem, you know, kind of seize in the moment uh, timeliness to what you say and when you say, say it. The flip side to is not only trying to reach them, but you also want to protect your kids and their purity and things like that. This is a tough one. And I'll, I'll say something, I'm, you know, you, you may have a different view, but my take in general is the approach of informed introduction. One of the great ways I feel like I constantly fail, my son in particular, is that he'll hear a word he's not heard from me, from somebody else, and then he'll say it at church. One of my best stories, um, we were standing around after church, I just preached, there were visitors, I think from Canada actually, and we're standing around talking and uh, some punctuated moment happens in conversation and my son says rather loudly, this is several years ago, what the... The pastor's kid. (laughs) What are you going to do with that one? (laughs) I mean, I just melted. (laughs) You know, I just crawled away from the conversation, just utter terror. But, you know, he'd never heard that word from me. I'm confident of that. But he heard it from somebody. And it just kind of raises the question, like, you know, informed introduction. A lot of the things that our kids learn and talk about regrettably Uh, they hear from other people for the first time and therefore there's not a healthy filter around that word or topic and I think this is a tough one but at the end of the day, I'm more and more realizing that perhaps what I need to be doing uh, is striving to be the first to introduce some of these things. It's uncomfortable and awkward, and frankly, you know, I feel like I'm being robbed of something because once that topic or vocabulary is out there, now they know, and a little bit of purity and innocence is lost with that. And at the same time, uh, would you rather be the one to have that conversation yourself or for them to get it off their iPad? Right? Uh, So, I think it's tricky. Now, let's go back to music for a minute. Music to me is really important. I listen to music a lot. Uh, There's a reason why uh, it kills me, like you have 15-year-olds with Pink Floyd t-shirts on. Like, really, man? Really? (laughs) Because, you know, Hollywood's run out of steam. The music industry is just hitting repeat. That's why everybody's going back to 80s music. I was just in Southern California. It's all coming back. It's kind of creepy. But I like a lot of this stuff, right? What's interesting to me is when I go back and listen to music from the 80s, the late 80s, early 90s, that was kind of a big influential time period for me. Uh, Now, this is an important phrase I'm about to say. Those musicians were my pastors. And those lyrics were my hymns. And those people were my church. So if part of what we want to do is understand the people around us, Frankly, one thing you might consider doing is introducing some of your kids to the songs from the 80s that you liked, and maybe the songs from the 80s you don't want them to hear, and why? Because their friends are probably listening to those songs and may sing them on the way home from the soccer game when you're not there, right? Uh, So, this is what I'm saying. We're formed an informed introduction uh, that talks about some of these things in such a way as to take the high ground. Rather than giving the high ground to the world, that not only, I think, gives us a pedagogical moment to teach our kids, but also uh, helps to engage. When I evangelize my millennial non-Christian friends, I actually try to quote musicians a lot. You know, we used to listen to a lot of Dave Matthews. And he, you know, has this line in one of his songs, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I've heard that somewhere. Well, and that's what he does. Metallica, you know, I was telling uh, Brock this morning, I've got a deviated part of my nose here, because in a mosh pit, I broke my nose, and three tequila shots later, I set it myself, and it's never gone back to the right place, so if I get the slightest allergy irritation, I get sinus infections, well, why, why is there all that anger, right, from the other day? It's because there's anger in our hearts, and we take it out in violence, What gang violence. This is a new phenomenon. There's a reason why we have it now. Breakdown of the family, uh, no economic horizon, no Christ, right? Uh, but to use music, for me, evangelistically, uh, helps me talk to people in a language they understand. So we need to learn in some ways how to speak the language of the people we're trying to evangelize without it overtaking us. you. You the presentation with... Yes, sir. If I may
1: reflect on a couple of obstacles. The first one is discouragement. As we reach out, we need to understand, in my thinking, that the harvest, he the road of the harvest. Yeah. So keeping score of how well am I doing is really a discouragement from the enemy because we are just laborers and we need to focus on that. The second obstacle is how do you evaluate professional evangelists, local and global, missionaries, many missionaries come to the mission board supporting church yeah. and brag about I brought so many to the Lord.
0: Yeah. And that is very difficult all around. Yeah. Okay, so let me interact with it at two points. One is to say, I don't think it's helpful to try to measure success numerically. I think we should measure success in terms of faithfulness. I can't save people. I'm just a blockhead. All right, thanks. Nope. No pushback there, Alan. (laughs) Wow. Quietest moment the whole week. I I get it. (laughs) You know, we we can't save people, and if we, if we, if if I measured, listen, if I measured success by counting heads, I would have quit a long time ago, and it would be a line of guys right behind me doing the same. You just can't, you can't, the Bible never quantifies success. It focuses rather on faithfulness. And I think the things that we need to do, it's like parenting. There's no such thing as silver bullet parenting, right? Uh, is it really the case if you just do all the right things, your kids will automatically come out saved? Well, if they come out saved, does that mean you did all the right things? And if they don't, will you ever sleep again? Same thing as a pastor, right? Uh, I think what we are to strive to do is to be faithful to the best of our abilities, good stewards of what we have and the resources the Lord has given us to carry the work of great commission, but to entrust the harvest to the Lord. It's His harvest. You can't make things come out of the ground, but you can do uh, the work of sowing and and watering. That's at least, I think, the Bible's vocabulary. I saw you look. Um, The second thing uh, is to say, in terms of evaluating other, you know, I'm not going to go down that trail. It would take forever. And frankly... You know, it's interesting, as I get a little older in ministry, one of the things I, I just find by way of a slight contrast my earlier years, I was more critical when I was younger than I am now. Now, I'm not saying I'm not critical now. I'm still pretty good at being critical. But it's it's I'm so aware of my own faults. It, it takes so much energy for me to work on me. I sometimes don't have enough to share <laughs> for other people's faults. is Messed up as they may be. But on this subject, I want to say two things, which means four, usually. One is, I will quote, I think it was Hudson Taylor, who says, I like what I'm doing wrong better than what you're not doing perfectly. That's great. I'll say it again. I like what I'm doing wrong better than what you're not doing perfectly. So I, I you know, we'll get into conversations with friends especially, you know, real Uber reform types, which I, I think I'm one of, and we'll, we'll talk about this subject, and they'll say, well, you know, this is what's wrong with EE, e. and, and this is what's wrong with Billy Graham, and, and this is what's wrong with, this is what's wrong with, and I start to yawn a little bit, start to, you know, even think about playing golf. <laughs> and, I, and I find myself wondering, okay, so we've become, like, expert at pointing out which, with what's wrong with that paradigm, or that paradigm, or that paradigm, in the meantime, we're not doing anything. And I am not okay with that. Like, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go down swinging on this one. Uh, we, we need to get out of the business of simply being known for what we're not and need to be known for what we are. We need to get practically engaged in what we are going to do, not studying experts of what other people ought not to be doing. And only when we get there, I think, will have entered into a really humble and fruitful place. And, you know, I mean, the Lord will bless who he wants to bless, but I would think that rather than spending tons of energy critiquing what evangelicals are doing wrong, we need to spend our energy doing evangelism. And if we've got reformed convictions that lead us away from uh, these little details, that's great. Let's do reformed evangelism. If I've said something that's not reformed enough, and you're thinking, fantastic. Uh, tell me how I can be doing better and show me how you're doing evangelism. That's where it has to end. We, we cannot simply, you know, lobby little hand grades from inside the ivory tower at why evangelicals are doing it wrong while we do nothing. I, I like the Taylor quote. You know, I, I like what I'm doing imperfectly better than what you're not doing perfectly. So we, we have to be known for what we are, not simply what we are not. That's actually, before we can critique others, we need to critique ourselves. uh,
1: Our time is at an end, and I think that's a good place for us to end with a challenge for all of us that we find in the word to go forth and to make disciples of all the nations. Let's give uh, a warm thanks to Pastor Watkins.
0: Thank you. Thank you. thank you you're very kind
1: and even though i may have uh had to cut us short just because there are nursery wor- or childcare child care workers down there and the parents can leave if they need to go get their children that's just fine um but uh, i'm sure as with most of our speakers if people would like
0: to send him an email or contact him maybe get some uh better understanding of some of the things that he said push back yes in fact let me on that note as you're heading out uh if you have any like Good questions, kind, encouraging uh, comments, whatever, send them to watkins.one at opc.org. Any disparaging remarks or outlandish criticisms, send them to (laughs) quick.one at opc.org.